And welcome back, everybody, to this week's edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is March the 3rd, 2016. And today's show is brought to you in part by Q Sports International. So what's going on in the pool world? Well, you know, uh, coming up this weekend, there's the uh, 7th Annual Northeast Pool and Billiard Hall of Fame uh, nine ball events growing up at, at uh, Snooker's Pool Lounge in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. That'll be a fun uh, event for all you guys up in the Northeast. Uh, of course, there's the Joss Tours kicking off the beginning of next week uh, out uh, in Clifton Park. And you've got also kicking off next week the WPBA back on the board. The Women's Professional Billiards Association back on the map with a new U.S. Open event that they're holding uh, at the Rivers Casino in Pittsburgh. That's going to start on the 9th, and it's going to run through the 13th. And I believe the finals and the semis are going to be broadcast live on ESPN3. So that's going to be a pretty good production there. Uh, Set your uh, DVRs or your schedule, as the case may be. You're not going to want to miss that. There's going to be some top players going on there. And then shortly thereafter, uh, right in the middle of that, basically, the Chinook wins. Eight ball open. It's going to kick up out in Lincoln City. And uh, just a day after that starts up, you got your China Pool World Championship going on. And that is going to be Chinese eight ball, by the way. And uh, let me tell you what, that is not easy. (laughs) It's not an easy game. But there is a heck of a lot of money at stake. Uh, I want to say there's just under a half a million dollars in the prize pool uh, with the winner of the men's taking home about $91,000 American. So uh, that's, mm, if you can compete with those guys, it's definitely worth the payday. You know what I mean? Um, we got a couple of guys going over, but not much of an American showing. Uh, let's see, we've got Jason Shaw, Darren Appleton, Max Eberly, John Mora, Chris Melling, um, some other guys from North America, but, uh, not any big Americans going to be there in that one, so, uh, maybe Aaron, uh, Darren will get lucky and go over there and just sweep it up, but, <laughs> I mean, that'd be nice, but, uh, ooh, that's, that's going to be a lot of work for no matter who it is, but. Anyway, so the best of luck to those guys in the international competitions and uh, the best of luck to the ladies. And today, a little bit later on in the show here, we're going to be talking with uh, Mr. Garrett Troop of uh, the Sneaky Pete Mafia. Uh, he's going to little tell you a little bit more about his organization. They have a multimedia uh, internet magazine and some other things in the works. So uh, stick around for that and then... After that, we'll be getting on to Chapter 7 of the fabulous Mr. Ponzi. So stick around. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to American Billion Radio. This is the Legends and Champions Report. I am your host, Mark Cantrell, and this is brought to you by 
Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. And uh, this week, there's, well, there's all kinds of news that's kind of going around, just bit, tidbits here and there. And so I was looking at some of the things on Facebook and uh, on, uh, obviously, AZ Billions uh, forums and realized there's uh, a group out there called Sneaky Pete Mafia. And uh, it's been around for a few years, I believe, and I, I really don't know very much about it. Uh, that's, you know, I, I, I can't follow everything that goes on. But Sneaky Pete Mafia seems to have been around for a few years, and so, you know, figured, let me find out a little bit more. So I got in touch with uh, Garrett Troop, who I have on the line with us. How you doing, Garrett? I am doing well. How about yourself? Good, thank you. And oh. uh, you're the you're the boss man, the honcho at Sneaky Pete Mafia. Yes, I created it. So tell me, tell me first of all, because I, I knew we were going to be doing this interview, and I purposely uh, didn't try and research because I'd rather hear it from the horse's mouth, as I keep saying. Um, and and you tell me, what is Sneaky Pete Mafia? What is it? Sneaky Beat Mafia is a company that I created four years ago to this day, actually. And when I had initially started it, it was a group on Facebook, and I really wasn't aware of all of the different um, attributes that social media had to offer. So the group, to me, was something that I thought was um, a one-of-a-kind type of thing. But when I, the initial thought process behind it was to create a place where people could come and talk about different things about tool and get instructional information and try and help the billiard community as a whole. Okay. So, but what does it actually, if I say I want to be a, a, a member of Sneaky Pete Mafia, is it a membership or a subscription or... It's a group on Facebook to start with, and that's where everything started from. And since then, it has branched out into many other types of engines. Okay. Now, you, you obviously you have a love for pool and the billiards industry in, in general. So, yes. what, 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 what's your background? Are you, are you just a pool fan, a pool enthusiast, or have you worked in the industry? Yeah, when I. When I first started this, I really had no idea about the larger industry that was behind it. I knew there was a lot of different pool players out there, and I had played I played pool for some years before that, but didn't really consider myself a pool player until I started this and started meeting the culture that was behind it. Yeah, so... So you're basically just a pool fan who knew how to set up a Facebook page. And how many, uh, I guess, members or likes or... Well, right now, we uh, members, we have, I believe, over 9,000. It's close to 9,000. Uh, I want to say uh, 96 or something like that. We're just about to break the 9,100 part. Well, that's a lot of reach. Um, and, and yeah, now you've, I guess, recently you came out with the, um, is it the magazine? Or how old is the, ma the magazine section of The magazine section, I started three years ago, and we're a quarterly publication, so it comes out four times a year. And we're 
in the process of releasing another issue here within the next 30 days. It's going to come out at the end of March. And we're really excited about this one because we're featuring um, some of the biggest and brightest of the youth of our industry. And on the cover is going to be featured Matthew Weber. And we're excited to um, help him along his journey. And so you, you, you kind of you, you said that we went from the Facebook and it's kind of spread into a lot of different areas. What are the areas? Yeah, the, mag- guys- the magazine. The, the magazine was the first part of the company that we really started expanding to. And what we've been doing is gathering articles and going from there and producing a magazine. And at this point, we're primarily digital, but soon we will be in hard copy again. Um, what we're trying to do is gather articles that talk about the industry as a whole. So these are from people that are all the way at the top of the industry and uh, uh, all the way down to consumers. So we're interviewing people like um, Ivan Lee of Simonis Cloth. We're, um, we have a lot of uh, professional writers working with us, like Dominic Esposito, Darren Appleton, Robbie Morris, and the list goes on and on. We're trying to give the world of billiards a really positive light because we feel that that's important, that from the inside culture and also the outside culture viewing in, that it's important to see the finer aspects of the sport that we love. Do you... Uh... So you, you have, you have clothing as well, though. You have a clothing line? Yes, we just started the clothing line, released it a couple of weeks ago, and we have five different designs now, and we're expanding upon that. Um, all of these uh, designs that are we're working with were created by a wonderful graphic designer, and his name is Eli Sabalos. And he's from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Um, how about s- selling anything? Do you sell shoes or anything? Or do you have a, a, yes, a, a for people to, to buy and sell? Yes. We have um, an online billiard store right now that we're calling Pool Pulse. And what we've done is we've gone and collected a lot of the distributors that are in the pool industry and combine them into a single centralized superstore, as I like to call it. And we're working with companies like Mueller's, Cyber, Q&K, Q-Six International, um, Delta 13, um, Jacoby is one of our main supporters. And we're in the process of creating this superstore where you can essentially come in and look for any different thing that you're looking for and find it in one centralized place. We're still adding products to this on a daily basis, and we're happy to happy to have this in our industry. What we're trying to become is the Amazon of the billiard industry. Okay, so that that was going to be my next question: is what, where do you, you four years today? You say you've been uh, yes, four years today. Um, where do you see yourself? going? What, what, what's the goal? All right, is, there, is there a goal or is it baby steps? Uh, oh, it's baby steps along the way entirely because that's the way that healthy business is prosperous. If you take giant leaps, there's more of an opportunity or more of a, 
a prospect of you falling that much of a greater leap. So we're all about the baby steps. Um, now, as far as where we would like to go in the future, I would like to see a monthly publication that has, on average, 100 pages. And for the digital side of it, we just upgraded the software that we've been using. So it allows you a lot more interactivity, I like to call it, within the magazine. So as you're going and you're clicking through the pages, you're turning through them, you have the opportunity to um, click on um, hyperlinks that will take you to, say, you're looking through it and you, you come across the Jacoby Custom Cues ad and it'll highlight when you click on that particular ad, it'll take you directly to their website, the same thing with like and so on. And they'll have an opportunity to have slideshows within their um within their ads. So it'll show you the latest cues, the latest cases, everything that they have that they've been cultivating for a long time and they're trying to showcase as a whole. Some of the other um, advanced features are social media plugins. So if you have a Facebook page or a group or something that you're trying to highlight on, there'll be a Facebook icon that you can click on. It'll take you directly to their page. There's the capability for YouTube plugins and GIFs. So as you're clicking through, you'll be able to watch a video within the magazine itself that will take you directly to that specific instructional video. Um, and we're also hooking up with you guys and going to be airing the, the interviews you guys do. And so they'll be embedded directly into the magazine. So it'll be a completely multimedia magazine where you can read and you can watch and you can listen to whatever you're wanting to in the billiard industry. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, now, is, is this... I guess you went with the with the magazine. Uh, I, I I say I'm totally ignorant on on this, but I know a couple of key points. Uh, you you are now you can you buy subscription to the magazine. Yes, um, we just started charging for subscriptions from uh, the last issue that we put out, and it was um, Xavier that was on the cover. He's a young man located out of Wisconsin here. And he's turning a lot of heads in the pool and billiard industry, and he has a really wonderful story. We're, um, tr we're trying to um, gain the exposure of the entire world and captivate the billiard audience. We're charging uh, $4.99 per issue, or if you want to buy a full year, you can buy it for $19.99, and you get access to five issues of Theft War. And I saw, um, I did get a, a look at the uh, the magazine. It looks very nice. looks very well laid out and everything else. Um, Thank you. If, if, I, if I wanted to look into the, the subscribing to the magazine, what, what what's my next step? Where do I go? You would go to sneakybeatmafia.com and follow the links from there. There is active... Hold on, hold on. I, I barely heard that. What, what, you go to where.com? SneakyPeakMafia.com. Okay. And yep. you can go to the links from there. Ultimately, that's where we're trying to gear um, the masses to go to. Um, the website is the end result. So the social media started the whole entourage of people coming into 
uh, Speak Deep Mafia team. Now we're trying to drive them to our website because ultimately that's the end, end result. Yeah, I was uh, just going to take a look for the first time, I think, at your website. And, and uh, see, like I said, I saw, I see, I saw the magazine. Um, and that's, uh, like I said, that, that's a, it's a nice magazine. I think uh, I'm looking at the, uh, your main page as we speak, and you've got a section for Autistic Pool there. A lot of times, people who are involved in mainstream pool are not necessarily involved with the Autistic Pool. Well, Artistic Pool is a growing enterprise within the billiard industry, and there's a lot of opportunity for entertainment value. Um, I personally find it very, very interesting to see the evolution of how to spin a cue ball. When I very, very first started playing, I had no idea about the more advanced features of pool, like jump and masse and carom combinations and so on. So, for me, these weren't trick shots. When I, the very first time I saw a mass A shot, it was to get around another ball and in um, an active tournament. So, for me, it started as a way to get out of bad leads, but the better player that you become, you obviously don't need those, those specific skills anymore. So, I think that's what it, it derived from was that specific point, and it took on a whole... Um, a whole new feature and character of itself, and people are really able to make the cue ball do amazing things. Are you um, also going to uh, uh, going out of your way to go to uh, pool tournaments and uh, yes, I play actively reporting on the events or just to play? Um, no, I do both. Um, we're reporting on. A lot of different events that are going on uh, nation and worldwide. We're just hooked up with a handful of people in Europe, and we're going to start to cover some of the snooker games that are out there. And my ultimate goal is to cover everything that is Q-sport related. Um, I want to say pocket billiards, but that leaves out three-cushion carom, and um, I can't leave those guys out. They do amazing things, too. So we're looking to to cover more and more of the industry as a whole. Okay. Are you uh, are you following the uh, Moscone Cup? Um, yes, we do. And what's what's your thoughts? Just, and this is just to you, uh, aside from Sneaky Pete Matthew, but I guess you speak for them. What, what's your thoughts on the 25 qualifying events and uh, where the leaders are at this point? Uh, we got Oscar... Uh, in first place, and Rodney Morris in second place. Uh, still 20 uh, events left. Uh, what, what's your thought on the whole situation? You know, I think that Rodney Morris probably has a little bit more experience um, on the table than Oscar does, and I know that he's been the team captain for many, many years and is doing a wonderful job at that. Um, Rodney who, Morris is a wonderful character. Who's, who's been the captain for many years? Rodney Morris. Of the Team USA? Um, in the past, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, he's, yeah, he hasn't been, he hasn't been on the Moscone Cup for a few years now. Well, I guess for how many years have it been? Like three? Three years? So, I guess, I guess that's about right. 
Um, do do you what do you think of the uh, last year's picks? Mark Wilson's picks. It's always up there for uh, controversy, whether one way or another. It's uh, you know he he picked uh, who did he pick? He picked Justin. Oh no, he didn't pick. He picked Skylar Woodard, and who was the other pick that he had? Uh, I can't remember. But I know that he, you know he made a. I think Skylar was the one that was a, a surprising one, uh, more than anybody else. Uh, do, do you do you see it going forth as far as the younger uh, young guns or to, to be on the team? Or do you think that there should be some uh, some of the veterans there, like Rodney Morris? Or uh... oh goodness, you know that's a very excellent question. I think that a combination of both is very um, applicable to have because with the previous generations of pool players, you get an asserted knowledge and um, forefront. I want to call it of games that they played in matches and hours and hours and hours on the table, and they're, they have something to prove because they're trying to hang on to what they have, and they've got all these young guys that are coming up in the next generation and trying to take it away from them. Now, we're all playing on the same team, mind you, but essentially that's what it gets down to. And I think that it's good to have diversity in everything that you do in the billiard industry. Yeah, it's a... It's a I keep saying it, it's a it's a tough uh, it's a tough one to call. Mark Wilson, I know, uh, is a great guy. Uh, he's trying to push the the youth into into the fold of the team. And absolutely, uh, I think um, billiards as a whole needs to um, start promoting the juniors and the the novice players coming into it because without the next generation of pool players coming in. Sport has no future, and and I agree with that. And here's where Mark Wilson and myself uh, may or may not disagree. I I, I know he's more on one side than uh, I am, and and I agree with what you said as far as the junior players, younger players, new people coming up. Um, but you've still got to pick a team that's going to win, and so it's tough to say. Well, you know, let's put. And this guy, this guy, this guy, because he's an up-and-comer. When you maybe need to put somebody else in, they can maybe win. So as much as I agree uh, that the youth of the sport is, you know, a a factor of bringing them into it, I think they need a lot more experience as well. I agree. I think that you also need to look at personalities on the pool table because everybody brings a unique standpoint and unique vision of the game itself. And some people will look at a shot and say, oh, well, you have to take it here, where another person will walk up to the table and say, well, I can take it here, but if I take that same shot, I can get the lead and go in three different directions. So diversity is important, but so is um, maturity and understanding and understanding of, of the game. Right, and, and you know, having said my little uh, speech that I made about you know, don't just bring the young people in just to do it. He brought in Skylar Wooded, who played out of his minds 
well as the Moscone Cup in Vegas, you know. So, you know, it, go, it goes to show you that opinions are like, uh, I'll leave that one alone. But everybody's got, <laughs> everybody's got, everybody's got an opinion. And, uh, you know, I, I, I said Shallow's got no, like, he doesn't have any experience, and, but he was winning things. But then he went off and, and played Dre under those conditions. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, and it's nothing. And that's nothing. wonderful. Some people react a lot differently under pressure than others. And if you look at the, the Stoning Cup as a whole, I think that it's probably the largest um, professional tournament in the world right now as far as professional pool goes. And I think that that's a, a large highlight in a lot of people's perception of what the sport is and can and should be. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, the Moscone Cup is the, is the event that everybody, well, everybody aspires to play for Team USA or Team Europe. Yeah. You know, there team. is a, an exhibition tournament, I guess if that's what you want to call it, that is happening here soon between Earl Strickland and Darren Appleton that I find very, very, very interesting. And it's being played on a custom-made table by Diamond Table, and it only has four pockets. They eliminated the two-side pocket, and they're going to be doing exhibition tournaments, I want to call it, um, to really heighten the sport and bring something new to the table. I, you know, I don't know if you can call it an exhibition if they're playing for 10000 Now, I don't know if that's 5000 each or 10000 each. I think um, it was 10000 if I remember reading correctly. Yeah, but is that 10000 each or is it 5000 a person? Because you know, I, people I, misconstrue I, that sometimes. Okay. Um, I honestly don't have the correct information in front of me, so I can't answer. So I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... Um, well, who do you who do you like in that match? Oh goodness, um, you know Earl Strickland has been wanting a table like this forever and ever, and I think for him it is an opportunity to really show his professional skill level. And I think, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, Darren Appleton has been doing lots and lots of drills. He's been posting them all over social media, and he's 100% on his stroke and his lead every single time. So that that's a tough call. I would say I want to say I want to say Darren, honestly. Yeah. Well, you know, he's uh, I'm yeah I'm friends with Earl, and I'm, I'm friends with Darren. Um, Earl, uh, you know, he's been wanting, like you said, he's been wanting this table for a long time. He was also wanting the 10-foot table for a long time. And he did beat Shane on on the 10-foot table, uh, but he hasn't had any luck beating anybody else on it. Uh, yeah. and he, that was the table he said, if I play on the 10-foot table, I'll rob everybody. And, yeah. and, he, and it didn't work out for him. So we'll see how it works out with the four-pocket table. And... I, I, I'm curious I, to see where Diamond is going to try and take this. If this um, tournament char, challenge match, if that's what you want to call it, um, turns out to be a really big hit and success, if they're going to actively try to produce these table, tables to some game rooms or um, professional pools. I, I think that's a toll order for people to start buying tables with four pockets 
you know, we've got enough problems having people trying to come and play pool to begin with when there's six pockets and you can feel like you're doing half decent if you're a beginner. Right. You know, you can feel like, oh, I got another ball because there was two extra pockets to go for. Um, I, I think it's only going to be the top end of the echelon of players that are, are, are going to be able to handle that table and be enthusiastic and appreciate it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that's the call for diamonds. I think tables like that would, would show them their spaces in places like Steinway Billiards and Sandcastle and places along the lines of that. You know, the, um, I, I'm going to tell you, I, 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 actually I spoke to Rodney Morris yesterday. And it was just it was just about something nothing. We would just chit chat, and we would talk about the same thing. And he thinks he likes Earl in this match. He says because Earl can do his uh, he, stroke and the spin that he can get on the ball and the shots that he can make uh, are, are really going to help him if the table is. I think he said if the table's heated and. There was a couple of other things, uh, you know, tight, tight pocket. Do you happen to know what game they're playing in this match? Ten ball. Ten ball. Okay. Versus 75. That's all I know. I don't know about ultimate break. I don't know. That's all I know of it. Now, the the thing is, I, I fancy Darren in this. And, and I'll tell you the reason why. Although Earl apparently has been playing on a table with four pockets for some time or practicing um, playing with only four pockets. But if he's practicing on a table, a regular table, and he's just saying, I can't make balls in that side pocket, then it's it, it really doesn't count because you can still knock a ball in that side pocket on the break. What happens to it then? You can still scratch right. the side. Uh, whereas right. you can't, you know, I, I tell you why I like Darren in this. And, and then we'll probably be just about done and bought everybody to tears. But he, he, he's not, he doesn't claim to be a great snooker player, but I know where he's from. He's from the same part of the country that I'm from, and of England. And I know that he's played snooker many, many, many times, and I believe that he's very, very proficient at it. I mean, he's, he's going to be a great snooker player. There's no doubt about it. And if you look at how the game of snooker works, you got the pink, you got 15 reds right behind it, and then the black behind it. Okay? You've got the other colors up the other side of the table. That's fine. Take, I'm forgetting about those for right now. But the patterns that you have to play to go from red to black, red, black, red, pink, they're all... It's a pattern that you know how to play that shot almost automatically if you've played enough snooker. And those shots that they make are always in the bottom corner pockets for the right. most part. So that's a pattern around those bottom two corner pockets that he's going to be, uh, I think he might have an advantage with. Now, Earl isn't stupid. He, he, he comes up with stuff that's unbelievable. And I think that he'll be able to if he hasn't already, figure it out. Uh, and But if Darren gets enough ahead of him, it's going to be tough for him to catch up. So that's my 
synopsis on on that. I think I think a race to seventy five is a pretty fair race between two of the world's most elite players, and the reason that is is because if it was a race to one or a race to you know five or a smaller race like that, it's easy for one person to break and run the rack after rack after rack. But when you at a certain point, if you make a mistake, it allows your opponent to really capitalize upon that. Yeah, and there's going to be there's going to be a difference in the break as well, isn't there? I mean, there's no side pocket as well. Is that going to come up with a lot of dry breaks? You think? Um, um, I I don't know. I think that ten ball is probably one of the most difficult racks to break. In pool, I've broken eight, nine, and ten, and I think ten is the hardest for some reason. You just—it's something about the kinetic energy between only having the four sets of rows of balls as opposed to five. So, I want to—I want to say—I want to say, yeah, you're probably going to have a more difficult time breaking a ten ball rack with no side pockets because side pockets really kind of eat the ball. No. Well, I guess we'll see how it all works out. It's definitely a different thing. Um, I think that's our time for today. But, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and uh, telling us a little bit more about uh, Sneaky Pete Mafia and what it's all about. And uh, if you want to subscribe, you can go to SneakyPeteMafia.com and follow the links for the magazine and uh, subscribe. Uh, is there a sample yeah. issue or anything there that people can look at to see what they're getting a what they're, what they're going to be looking, what they're paying for in advance? Or? Uh, yeah, we're looking to set that up. You can look at the first seven issues that are 100% free that are on the website already. Okay. And well, that gives a really good dynamic feel of the progression of what we've been doing up until now because each individual article, each individual magazine gets better and better and better. Another thing that we like to do is we are have an active blog that has several hundred entries in it as well. So a lot of the stuff, the, the articles that get submitted to us, will go through a procedure where we'll determine whether they're going to be published in the magazine or not. And if they're not published in the magazine, a lot of the time we'll publish them directly into the blog, and that gets updated a few times a week, so there's always current content going into it. Okay. Well... Again, thank you very much, Garrett. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck. Hope everything works out for you uh, in the future and uh, moving along with your aspirations for Sneaky Pete Mafia. Thank you very much for your time. Have a good one. All right. You take care. All right. Bye. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Legends and Champions Report. Uh, I am Mark Cantrell. It's been brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. And... Just an informative show, just uh, for anybody who keeps seeing on their Facebook, Sneak Beat Mafia, uh, I guess now you know a little bit more about it and uh, can look deeper into it. Until next week, thank you all for listening, and I will speak to you then. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is the portion of the show where we have been reading through a book, a chapter at a time, 
Uh, the name of the book is The Fabulous, the Fabulous Mr. Ponzi. It's the autobiography of three-time world pocket billiard champion Andrew D'Alessandro, otherwise known as Andrew Ponzi. Um, we're doing a chapter a week. Um, we skipped a couple of weeks there, and uh, we're catching back up with uh, Chapter 7. If you've missed any of the chapters, obviously, you can go back to our archive and uh, listen to the ones uh, 1 through 6 to catch up. And just let me throw this apology in there. Uh, <laughs> it's not that I'm a bad reader. Uh, this is a somewhat rare book. Uh, it's not that old. This is from 1948. But it is rare. There wasn't that many printed and not that many were purchased. So to get a copy of it is nearly impossible to do. I got a, my hands on a copy. Um, but it is a reproduction. And it's bound backwards. And the uh, quality of the copy is really bad. It's hard to read. There's typos all over the place. So um, just to let you know, if I stutter over some stuff, it's it's not really my fault. It's kind of a difficult book to move through. So with that, we'll go ahead and get on to Chapter 7. Uh, if you'll recall from Chapter 6, um, Ponzi just played in a match against Greenleaf and was interrupted by a in a crucial moment by uh, his cashier because they were out of register tape. <laughs> so and Ponzi's a little mad at him. Okay, chapter seven. The first, the very first thing I did the next day was to tell my bartender that his services were no longer required, that his bull had contributed materially to my downfall the night before, and that I was in no mood for apologies or explanations. Then Levy and I sat down to discuss the disaster and our future. We reviewed every phase of the tournament and concluded that no errors, either of omission or commission, were responsible for my reverses. The facts stood out plain as Durante's nose. I could not bear the load of business worries and play my best game. There is an old axiom that no man can follow two masters. The realization dawned upon me that either I must retire from business or forsake the game. To give up my career as an active player was unthinkable. All the success and prosperity I had achieved up to this time I owed to billiards. The thrill of competition, the feel of a cue in my hand, was part of my flesh and blood. I decided to explain all this to my employers and ask for my release. There was a clause in our agreement which stated that either party might cancel upon six months' notice if and when I lost my title as a world champion. My mind was made up irre irrevocably to exercise that clause on my own behalf. I went to Mr. Floyd Brown, who had originally contracted for my services, and explained the situation. Mr. Brown was very kind and understanding. After discussing the matter with his associates, they agreed to release me the following May. We severed our business relationship on the most amicable terms. When the day to say goodbye arrived, there was a sad note in my voice. To think that it all had to end this way. On the other hand, it was a great relief to be free from the worry of conducting business. 
Levy suggested that I take a, va a vacation until I was in the proper frame of mind to map out a plan for my future. Madeline and the baby had already gone to Virginia, where I had purchased a home, so Sam and I decided to spend a few weeks among the Thousand Islands. As we entered the car to drive away, Levy turn turned to me with a smile of resignation. Well, here we go again, he said. We drove leisurely to Rochester, New York, the home of Irving Crane. The fans of this city were proud of the great showing Irving had made in his maiden effort for titular honors. And Mr. Jerome Keough, the leading billiard room operator in that city, requested us to stay a few days and play a match against Crane at Coe's Billiard Room. Mr. Cushing, sports director, editor of the Democrat Chronicle, and Mr. Matt Jackson of the Times Union, wrote up the game as though it were the sporting event of the season. The publicity brought bumper crowds to witness the matches. Under the thrill of completion or competition, I began to feel like my old self once again. From the city of Holmes, we drove over the Canadian border to Toronto and decided to spend a day at the races. At the track, we ran into New Yorker to into a New Yorker who used to patronize my former room. He marked our programs for prospective winners. I must say he knew his bang tails. We had a very profitable afternoon. After the races, we invited our New York friend to have dinner with us, and in the course of conversation, he mentioned that there was a certain room owner in Toronto who would wager any amount of money on himself in a game of snooker billiards. This game is wildly popular in Canada and in the British Isles, although not nearly so in the United States. I seldom play it, but I recall that I had defeated the best players in Montreal when I appeared there for Mr. Dave Major. Levy suggested that we form a small pool and challenge the Toronto man just to round out the day of excitement. Unlike pocket billiards, this game is played on a 6, six by 12 foot table. There are 21 object, object balls, 15 reds, and 6 assorted colors. And the highest score at the end of the game decides the winner. After dinner, we drove over to see Mr. Snooker Player. His room reminded me of my former beautiful place in New York. It was so different. It was dark, dingy, uninviting. There was no dome lights over the tables, just a few bulbs high in the ceiling. The equipment showed signs of long usage. I can't imagine anyone enjoying a game under such conditions. We stated the object of our visit, and our host said, Grab yourself a cue and name the amount. When I went to the cue rack, the crooked sticks reminded me of some of Boston's streets. I had n neglected to bring along my own private cue, but when I noticed that the owner was selecting one of the same lot, I felt I was at no disadvantage, so I chose one for my own use. We agreed to play for $100 a side, and as the patrons crowded around the table, 
Each man begged the room owner for a small part of the wager. They acted as if this were easy money. Every man was eager to climb aboard the gravy train. It is beyond my understanding, but nevertheless it is true. Sometimes a man will play an atrocious game with the very finest equipment and will get one of the very best results under very adverse circumstances. The latter is just what happened to me that night. In spite of a warped cue, worn cloth, poor lighting, I managed to run a total of 84 points on my first turn at the table. The spectators were ringing around us so closely that I could hear a man remark jestingly, When did Joe Davis, the British snooker champion, arrive in Canada? My opponent knew the finer points of the game, but my knowledge of free cushion plus my shot-making ability carried me out of danger on the few occasions when he threatened to snooker me. When I at last made the black ball which ended the game, my opponent walked over to me, raised my arm aloft, and proclaimed, Winner and new champion. He, as well as his patrons, took the, the defeat like the grand sports that the Canadians are. Sam and I left Toronto the next day to start a leisurely drive back home over Canada's famous King's Highway Number 1. We drove along the beautiful St. Lawrence River, stopping whenever the mood struck us to go bathing or fishing. When we finally arrived back in New York, Sam bade me farewell and I continued on to my house in Salem, Virginia. I did not know it at the time, but that farewell between Levy and myself ended a wonderful business relationship that had lasted for ten years. The bond between us had been more like father and son than player and manager. Sam took my reverses to heart. He was elated beyond words when I met with success. When he wrote me that he intended to go into business and was giving up the road, I decided to place my services at the disposal of the Billiard Association of America, which by now had displaced the National Billiard Association as the governing Q organization in the United States. They were sending a program of players on a tour of America to stimulate interest in the game. This was in the nature of a package deal whereby the billiard operator would receive the services of some outstanding player every second week. Our program consisted of William F. Hoppy, Charles Peterson, Irving Crane, Erwin Rudolph, and myself. The entire program of costly talent was sold at a very moderate fee, the brunt of the expense being borne by the Billiard Association of America. For two years I continued on the program. Then, in 1940, seven of the most prominent room owners in the East organized the National Billiard League, with seven noted players signed to represent them in their respective cities. Mr. Bob McGurr of New York signed me to represent his Broadway Academy. The rest of the field consisted of Erwin Rudolph, Onofrio Laurie, Irving Crane, George Kelly, Joe Prosida, Jimmy Karras. Each player represented a room in some city located along the eastern seaboard. Like a basketball schedule, we would play a certain number of home games and then make a tour of the circuit. Baltimore was on my itinerary, 
and I was always glad to come to this old city as I made many dear friends here on previous visits. One of my frequent appearances here resulted in the most thrilling match in which I had engaged up to this time, and I believe it certainly deserves, deserves a retelling in this story. While playing a match at the Hudson Recreation in Philadelphia, I was approached by a party who introduced himself as Mr. Abe Talkin of Baltimore. He told me how much he enjoyed watching me play and said he would like to send for me at some future time to come to Baltimore and pit my skill against some of the local champions. I was only 17 at the time, and naturally I was flattered by his words of praise. Whenever he came to Philadelphia, he would look me up. We became very good friends. One evening, while, I, while at home, I received a phone call from Mr. Talkin asking me to come down to Baltimore at once. He had arranged for a match for me that called for $1,000 a side. When I arrived in Baltimore, Mr. Talkin registered, registered me at the Kernan Hotel and then went into an explanation relative to the match that he had arranged. It seems that Abe and a Mr. Aaron Green, one of Baltimore's biggest concessionaires, were indulging in a friendly game of billiards in the billiard room of the Kernan Hotel. Mr. Green happened to be in fine form and took great pleasure in needling Abe for the latter's lack of skill with the cue. Exap exasperated at the constant boasting of his playing companion, Tolkien lost his head and in a rash moment cried out, I'll bet you a thousand dollars I've got a kid in town who can beat you one hundred to fifty. The response was, if his name is not Ralph Greenleaf, you've got a bet. When Abe had finished, I looked at him in amazement. How in the world did you ever come to make such a wager? Those odds are impossible. You've got me beat before I start. I lost my head, Andy. Just do the best you can, and I won't blame you for whatever happens. I've seen you run a hundred balls many times. Who knows? We may get lucky. We went to the Kernan billiard room so that I could inspect the equipment. I observed that they were all small-sized tables, not the regulation 5 by 10 championship tables. If I were to get some good breaks, there might be a possibility that I could run 100 and salvage Tolkien's $1,000. As we stood there in conversation, I noticed a familiar face in the crowd. It was that of a man whom I had often seen at some of the Philadelphia's biggest sporting events. I recalled that he had watched me play at the Hudson Recreation. Although we, had, although we had a nodding acquaintance, I knew him only as a person called Blackie. He was of the type who never seemed to work, but was always supplied with the best clothes and plenty of money. He kept gazing in my direction, looking for some sign of recognition, but I turned my head as though I had never seen him before. The match had been set for the following evening. It was now quite late, so I decided to retire to my room and seek a good night's sleep. I must have been sleeping for an hour or more when I was awakened by a rapping on my door. At first it was very gentle, then it grew louder and more insistent. For the moment, I had the impression that my friend Tolkien had returned to deliver some forgotten message. 
Half asleep, I arose and opened the door. In walked Blackie. He closed the door and sat himself down on the edge of my bed. I was in the billiard room when your pal made that wager with Green, he began. He's touted you to his friends as a sure winner, and they'll bet plenty just on his say-so. I began to get the drift, but I let him continue. If you're a smart kid, we can make a clean-up, he said. He paused to see what effect his words might have upon me, and then went on. If you'll let Green win tomorrow, I'll give you 500 now and percent and 10% of any other wagers I cash. For a moment I thought this might be some ruse of some of some ruse of Tolkien's to test my honesty. But in the same breath I dismissed the idea. Abe would never resort to such trickery. He was just a cheap racket here was just a cheap racketeering racketeer trying to cash on a sure thing. I'm not interested, I answered coldly. Besides, I'm very sleepy. Good night. You're a foolish kid, Ponzi, he said. This fellow Green will beat you, sure, at those odds, and you'll wind up without a quarter. Better listen to reason. Good night, I repeated. And then, just to make it more emphatic, now you get the hell out of my room. Blackie left. When I recounted the incident to Talkin, he said, Just like those guys. Always looking for something that's in the bag. That evening before we commenced play, Kernan's billiard room was crowded with Baltimore billiard with Baltimore's billiard fraternity who had learned of the match. They were all on hand to share in the excitement and pass judgment on the ability of that kid from Philadelphia. I got my first look at Aaron Green, Aaron Green when we took our places at the table to toss for the break. He was short and stout, and his chubby frame, frame was attired in what the well-dressed man is supposed to wear. His round, moon face betrayed no emotion as he idly chalked his cue. Talkin had told me that Green was accustomed to making wagers of five hundred or a thousand dollars on the turn of a card and was known as a good money player. With the same nonchalance as though ordering a cup of coffee for breakfast, he pulled a coin from his pocket and flipped it in the air. I called the turn and Green broke the balls. He left me a very good opening shot and I proceeded to make the most of it. I ran the first three racks for a total of forty-one points or 42 points without any trouble. When I started on my fourth frame, I must have put too much stuff on my cue ball because it caromed off the break ball, shot into the bunched triangle, and then jumped off the table completely. The balls were scattered all over the table as Green commenced to shoot. His face was an, emotional, a, an emotionless mask as he called each ball before he shot. I watched him carefully to see if he made the correct play. There was no mistaking the fact he certainly knew the game. He ran the first three racks just as cleanly as I had done in my first inning. It looked like curtains for me, for he needed just eight more balls to complete his score of 50. 
when he had counted 47 ivories on his string, I got a lucky break and a new lease on life. He missed a shot that jawed in the upper left-hand pocket. My spirits rose at this unexpected turn in my favor. I still had 59 to go, and that seems quite a run when one is under pressure, but I never faltered. Every ball went into the pocket as though they had eyes, and Mr. Green never did get those three balls necessary for victory and $2,000. What a cheer went up from the crowd when I had safely tucked away my hundredth ball. Abe Talkin put his arms about me and hug, hugged me hard enough to take my breath away. Friends and strangers were laughing and applauding my garrison finish. Suddenly, some of Talkin's friends raised me to their shoulders and paraded me around the room. No football hero who had made a touchdown in the last minute of play ever received more acclaim from his friends than I was, than I was bestowed that night. No wonder I recall the incident with such heartfelt warmth. Remember, I was only 17 years of age. Such momentous incidents, when one is young and impressionable, are never forgotten. The next day when I left for home, neatly tucked away in my inner pocket were five $100 bills, which Mr. Talkin had given me as my share of the wagers. Whenever I return to Baltimore nowadays... Some of the old-timers will start reminiscing and will remind me of that game. If I try to appear modest and answer with, Yes, I was pretty lucky last night, or that night, he is bound to snort indignantly and answer, Lucky nothing. You played the greatest game I ever saw in my life. Baltimoreans were also destined to witness another memorable episode in my playing career when I clinched the pocket billiard crown for the second time. This was in April 1941. With a few more games of league play scheduled, I defeated Onofrio Lorry at Johnny Klein's Academy to retrieve the world's championship beyond any mathematical doubt. During the progress of the league, I set a new world record for league play with a high run of 127. Although the blocks called for 125 points each, I started my record-smashing string with two scratches on me, thus the score of 127. The next day, I received two congratulatory messages. One was from Levy, the other from Mr. Romeo. It was, to, it was good to know that I had not been forgotten by my old friends. If I should happen to survive these bosom pals, I know they will still be waiting for me at the pearly gates and the first question they ask will be, how did you make out in the last tournament? That concludes Chapter 7 of The Fabulous Mr. Ponzi. Join us again uh, next week, and maybe we'll have uh, getting on to Chapter 8. Thanks, and we'll see you next week right here on American Billiard Radio. Mm-hmm.